Hello, girls, boys, and everyone in between. I'm Scarlett. I'm Roxy. And I'm Marjorie. And we are the Red Resistance Podcast. Hey, podcast buddies. How you doing today? Wonderful. How are you, Scarlett? I'm amazing because I'm here with you guys, and I'm just so excited to be following up with this episode. Yes. Likewise. So just housekeeping, the usual. Please go rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts for us. It is super important. So I'm going to turn this over to Marjorie because Marjorie's got a super extra special thing to do uh, about our Patreon. We have our first Martha. And all the Marthas get a shadow on the episode. So Brandy, this is your shadow. Not only are you our first Martha, you were our first patron. So thank you. Thank you, Brandy. Thank you, Brandy. Yeah, this is so cool. I was so excited. I'm like, oh my God, it's Brandy. Oh my God, this is so old school. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, Brandy, we were over the moon excited that you believe in us enough that you want to help us by being a sustaining member. So thank you. Yeah, greatly appreciated. So Mm -hmm. cool. Just as a refresher, for those of you that are slightly confused about what we're talking about, um, we recently launched our Patreon page. Patreon's basically like an online tip bucket for either one-time or monthly sustaining donors. Anything that you choose to offer us would be most appreciated. Basically, it helps to, as Marjorie put it, keeps the lights on and keeps the Hulu subscription rolling for us. <laughs> so to find us, go to patreon.com slash theredresistance. And there's a great breakdown there of each of the individual tiers and what they entail and all the fun goodies that you can get. Um, You can also find a nice video explaining it on our Instagram page, Red Resistance Podcast. Nicely done, Roxy. Perfect. All right. Well, we're going to jump into the second half of our coverage of Season 1, Episode 4, Nolite Te Bastardes Carborundurum. That is a mouthful. It's a tongue twister, to say the least. Oh, it's a real bitch. It really is. You nailed it. Thanks, Claire Danes. Yeah. You're right. I don't know if you said it on air last time or between us, but Uh I was listening to it this week, and I was really admiring the way she said it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something very clear and crisp Mm -hmm. about the way Claire Danes says it in the audiobook for The Handmaid's Tale, and that that was the thing that I needed to listen to to have my breakthrough. The second half of this episode, we are going to start with a flashback of the Red Center. It's the one where June and Moira are getting ready to spring their attack mm-hmm. on Aunt Elizabeth. And June's in the doorway, and she calls to Aunt Elizabeth, Hey, Aunt Elizabeth, one of the toilets is overflowing again. And the aunt goes with June to take a look. And when she enters the bathroom, we see Moira standing off to one side. So Moira's just in the perfect position to just really, like, spring on her. Mm -hmm. And so she comes up behind Aunt Elizabeth, rushes her, shoves her into a stall, and tells her not to make a fucking sound. And I Mm -hmm. think Aunt Elizabeth definitely peed a little. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. I would not doubt Mm -hmm. it. And then she's got the toilet lever, the toilet lever in her hand, and she's got it pressed up against her friggin' throat, and it was so absolutely fantastic. She was just so scared shitless. Well done, Moira. Yes. This was a nice deviation from uh, from the book. So in the book, uh-huh. um, it's Moira's relaying the story of her escape to June um, when they're in Jezebel's. Uh-huh. And um, it was just Moira and just recounting her tale, whereas in the show, it was June and Moira. And... I really liked that because instead of it just being Moira making her daring escape, it made it so that way it worked as a good plot device with June and her development as a character and her relationship with Moira. And it helped us to further understand how their relationship works. Mm -hmm. So I thought that this was really well done in that regard. Right. They work well as a team, that's Mm -hmm. for sure. 
refresh my memory in the book. It, are they ever at the Red Center together? They are in the Red Center okay. together, yeah. But they the just book. don't try to escape together. No, yeah, they don't try to escape. Um, Moira makes the escape herself mm-hmm. using the um, using the toilet lever that okay. she's filed down. So that was uh, that was accurate. Okay. Um, but it was just Moira. Yeah. And um, and she makes her or tries to make her escape rather, yeah. um, which proves to be unsuccessful because right. she finds yeah, herself in Jezebel's relaying to June exactly what happened to her. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, no, it was ju- it was a one woman operation hmm. as opposed to a tag team effort. Yeah. That's so. perfect for this episode. I great. think I like the tag team better. This is pretty great. Agreed. Mm-hmm. It was just a nice way to develop their relationship even more. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, they por- they force Aunt Elizabeth downstairs to the boiler room, and June tells her to take her clothes off, and Elizabeth is like, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. And June cattle prods her for not listening. That must have felt good. Right? Oh, satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, how do you just not keep cattle prodding Seriously. her? I would have been like... Can we just do this for a few minutes <laughs> to really, really drive home the point of how serious we are about this situation? <laughs> but it turns out to be advantageous for her that she didn't go mental yes. with a cattle prod because that would have come back to her in triplicate at the mm-hmm. end. Oh, without a doubt. Um, they played this really, really well with maybe self-preservation in their subconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, so Moira is taking off her clothes and June's trying to subdue the aunt and she's trying to like plead with her and... Moira grabs the cattle prod and goes to Aunt Elizabeth. And I just, oh man, she really scared the shit out of her. I love it. You know, Moira says, what? It's an eye for an eye, right? I could shove this right down your throat and burn your tongue off. Or your cunt. Remember that I didn't, if it ever comes to that. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, the self-restraint is really, really impressive. But she was was kind of politicking here Mm -hmm. to make sure that it didn't, come down any harder on her than it needed to. Or, I mean, what if um, on the off chance that, you know, this happens to the aunt and, I don't know, maybe they don't want it to get out or she gets away somehow and she doesn't want to tell anybody that it happened. Mm -hmm. Maybe just as a courtesy to be like, okay, well, no, she didn't. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, cattle prod the ever-loving shit out of me. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I I took it as um, Moira showing that she still was maintaining her humanity. And that mm-hmm. Aunt Elizabeth and all of the aunts that are complacent in the dehumanization of all of these women, mm-hmm. turning them into walking uteri, yeah. have no concept of humanity whatsoever. Yeah. And Moira was making a, a point to differentiate mm-hmm. herself yeah. and show that she still has human yep. compassion. I'm right. not like you. Yep. Yeah. The roles were reversed and mm-hmm. she wasn't as bad. Exactly. I hope it made I think Aunt it was Elizabeth both. feel like a piece of shit. Yeah. But jumping back one second in mm-hmm. that scene, mm-hmm. when... Moira's getting changed. Elizabeth is pleading with June. Yeah. But she's trying to get her to flip on Moira. Yeah. And I really loved that they did that in this episode because we're seeing so much of what women can do to each other. Mm-hmm. And I love that June and Moira stuck together. Yeah. You know, she could have flipped on her at that point and said, all right, well, let me just be, let me give myself a gold star here. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Elizabeth was trying to get her to do. Yeah, by saying, please, I know this wasn't your idea. Yeah. I was trying to get her it's to not fold. not too late. Something about it's not too late. Yeah. Yep, so she tries to get her to, fl- to flip on Moira mm-hmm. and let her go. And she doesn't, and I just love that she didn't. And Which, but for what it's worth, Aunt Elizabeth was really clever in that moment by trying mm-hmm. to use a, men- or, um, a manipulative mental tactic, knowing that June is definitely not of as sound resolution right. as Moira is. Right. Moira would absolutely not be compelled by that, but June, who we've ta- or we talked about previously, was like 75% of the way there with realizing that shit had hit the fan but was still kind of in denial. Right. Could hypothetically have been 
swayed by oh, that. Totally. Yeah. You so. always got like the mastermind mm-hmm. and then you have like the follower. The crony, yeah. yeah. Jude was totally mm-hmm. the crony. Mm-hmm. What was uh, Elizabeth's former vocation in life? Do you remember from the Testaments? No, but we have a copy of the Testaments here somewhere, right? We sure do. It's right there. We should I, remember, considering we spent three months I analyzing it. I, I'm having a hard time picking up that book. Like, it's over there taunting me, and I'm like, I don't want to open it again. <laughs> All right. I, it's been too long. I can't I can't go through the Rolodex of my brain and figure out where it is. Sorry, guys. Yeah, this yeah. probably should be you trying to figure it out. Here's a book. Well, it's definitely <laughs> in here somewhere. It's definitely yeah. a Lydia chapter. Yeah, Lydia, I think, is cloth. in green. Um, right. If I had to take a stab at it, it's probably I when they're in it by miracle. Wow, that was easy. <laughs> My first meeting with Elizabeth Helena and Vidal took place, so it's got to be around there. Yeah. Right? Um, Elizabeth was from a higher social sphere, by which I mean very obviously higher than mine. It would lead her to underestimate me. She was a Vassar girl and had worked as an executive to a powerful female senator in Washington. Presidential potential, she had confided. But the think tank, oh no, the thank tank, I forgot about mm, that. Thank tank. The thank tank had broken something in her. Her birthright and education had not saved her, and she was dithery. Which means that considering she worked in politics, she's a master of mental manipulation. Yes. Yeah. And yep. she deferred right back to that in, in her time of dire need. Interesting. Hmm. Boxing clever. Yeah. One of the things that bothered me about this scene is Moira... After she says that, um, remember that I just remember I didn't. If it ever comes to that, mm-hmm. and she shoves the dry fabric into uh, into Elizabeth's mouth and walks away. What a rookie mistake! Right. I was shocked by that. Right, everything uh, else is so thought out. Mm-hmm. Like June has her walking cloak handy. Like they, how do they acquire a cattle prod? Like <laughs> all of these details and. You just shove a dry piece of fabric into her mouth and walk away, and you I don't know. secure it? I know. That, I thought that was I was so <sighs> aggravated by that. As somebody whose mother introduced me to Magnum P.I. by the time I was, like, two years old, even as a little <laughs> child, I knew that when you tie somebody up, you make sure that you put something in their mouth and then tie it around their head right. so they can't spit it back out and, and scream. Right. Oh, my God. Anyone with a mouth should know that, right? <laughs> right. What would think? Especially so Moira, we know this. she's a little kinky. <laughs> so, like, she would know you can spit out a ball gag if there's nothing holding it on. <sighs> it just, it seemed, it's such an, an amateur oversight when everything else was at least as well thought out as it could be. Right. So that was f- so frustrating to watch. Mm-hmm. Like, come on, girls. And they obviously have loose fabric because they tied up Aunt Elizabeth's hands around the pipe. Right. Mm-hmm. So it would have been as simple as ripping the garment and tying a piece of fabric around her head or around her mouth, and that would have bought them at least another five minutes, right? If not another fucking day, who knows? So everybody listening, <laughs> when it's time to flee the country and you find yourself in some questionable situations and you have to tie somebody up, always, always secure the gag. <laughs> Um, I feel better now. I feel like I did a public service. I'm going to make a montage of all your public services. Oh, boy. <laughs> I think this podcast is a public service. Sure is. I'm trying. I can't wait to get to the Luke Escape episode. I've got thoughts. <laughs> well, now uh, Moira and June are exiting the building, and this scene was really kind of painful for me because they are they clearly don't know how to act. They yeah. have not been let loose in the new 
Gilead society. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder then how long were they in that center for things to have changed so drastically that when they get out of there, they're seeing, you know, handmaids walking two by two and there's mm-hmm. eyes. Like there's clearly been this huge shift mm-hmm. of how things are done. Things are different. There's no signs. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, my God, how long do they keep them in that freaking center? That's a good point. Yeah. Um, that's just something I was wondering about. And um, they go to the door and a guardian says to Moira, where are you taking this handmaid? And Moira is like, who the fuck are you talking to? She gives them the dirtiest look and tells them to open the gate. And they listen. They yeah. just do mm-hmm. it, which that's our first cue to like just how much power aunts have outside of yeah. the sphere. We've yeah. seen it inside, but this is our first taste of, well, from in the before times, mm-hmm. of how much uh, power they have outside of mm-hmm. that gymnasium. I was surprised that Moira knew that, though, because she says something along the lines of... Just look meek. She says that to June, and then Mm -hmm. she says something about, like, he's not going to question me, I'm an aunt, Mm -hmm. and, like, strides over there. And I'm like, oh. Interesting. So it just makes me wonder, like, you know, what have they seen? Yeah. They must have guardians and stuff in there. That's a good point. My guess is that because we we saw in the gymnasium that the aunts are commanding the audience and that there are the guardians and the eyes around, but they don't intervene unless the aunts command them to. Yeah. So she Moira probably picked up on that. That like case in point, point when Janine was I was pulled away to mm-hmm. have her eye plucked out. Mm-hmm. Aunt Lydia approached her first, cattle prodded her, and then directed the guardians to take her away. I forgot yeah. they were in there and yeah. around. Yeah. So my guess is that Moira, being as intelligent as she is picked up on that and realized that the aunts still have command over them. Mm-hmm. And this is why the aunts are the highest tier of our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> because they have some power. Um, then in that very same scene, we start to hear those chimes again that signify it's ceremony time, and it cuts to June in the sitting room. That scene, right, like that one visual right before they cut, mm-hmm. was so gorgeous. So you had... Like this concrete structure mm-hmm. with these two guardians that were leaning against it facing the camera and then this what looked like a window cutout and you can just see Moira and June walking uh, walking away mm-hmm. and they look so infinitesimal compared to the Ooh, I scale. I forgot about that. Yeah. That's really cool. Oh, I the, didn't notice that. The visual of it was awesome because you realize like we're, if you're just watching them, mm-hmm. you think you're like they're making this daring escape. Right. But in the grand scheme of things in Gilead, uh-huh. this overwhelming oligarchy, mm-hmm. they're they're nothing. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's kind of like a David and Goliath scenario, but doesn't David bring Goliath down eventually? Eventually, yeah. Oh. <laughs> that's that's a nice biblical tie in there too. Way to use the Old Testament as well. Hey. <laughs> It's because we pulled the testaments out again. <laughs> That's why. God now that the fucking book has infected my brain. <laughs> well, June is in the sitting room and she places herself on the ceremonial pillow. Ugh, with and those creepy chimes. Oh my in the god, background. I saw one at Target. I swear Stop. to God. I was and you in didn't there. Buy it? I didn't know. I really didn't have the extra money to spend on a friggin' pillow to sit on, <laughs> on for when I'm gonna pillow. be defiled. But um I <laughs> I saw it, and I grabbed my kid, and I was like, are you kidding me right now? I'm like, do you see that? I'm like, doesn't that look like a ceremonial handmaid's pillow? And they're like, oh, my God, it does. Are you going to buy it? Was this, um, I'm going back and buying it. So 
You didn't get the pillow. Oh, I didn't did not pillow. get the pillow. Mm, probably for the best. Target. Mm-hmm. Going to find that pillow. It's yeah. the same size and everything. I'm like, what are you doing, Target? <laughs> Something cool about this: when she kneels, mm-hmm. we get this great shot of her, and there's the chandelier above her head. Just oh. like we get the chandelier above Serena's head when she's in, oh, or when there she's in the dining room, mm-hmm. showing that she is the queen of the household. Mm-hmm. It's not as prevalent. It's not as glamorous of a chandelier, but yeah. you still have this perfect shot of June with her shoulders squared and centered in the uh, in the shot, and this mm-hmm. fuzzy chandelier above her. That not necessarily that she's ruling the roost, but she is the most important person in this room That's at present. The truth, yeah, definitely. No, oh, that's cool. I don't know. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but yeah, but there I was, like it. it makes sense. There was That's another the second time we see it, though. Mm-hmm. There's another time that comes up later too. Ooh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, in walks Fred, and she's like, "What the fuck is he doing here?" And Alfred is thinking in her head about the order in which the household members are supposed mm-hmm. to arrive for the ceremony pregame, and he's supposed to knock. And this is highly unusual, and I'm sure this must have made her feel like really just on edge and just off because what is happening, something is different. We're deviating from the script. Mm -hmm. And he apologizes for startling her and proceeds to have a completely normal fucking conversation. Like, the circumstances aren't already totally weird. Right. Did you notice what they were focusing on when she's going through in her head, like, the order that everything's supposed to be happening? Um, So she's kneeling, and it's, like, this close-up of her Mm -hmm. face, and he's approaching, and they just show his hands fiddling yeah, with each, uh, fiddling weird? with themselves next to her face and usually when a i mean from every other interpretation you see in most tv shows and movies when a married man is nervous he kind of fiddles with his wedding mm-hmm. ring mm-hmm. he's fiddling with the key to open up the uh the box that the bible is set in with the ceremony mm-hmm. which I, I i felt like there was something there and i couldn't quite get there um, for what the meaning was, but it really felt like it was like nervously tittering with it. Oh, I just had a thought. Okay, in that scene, can you see his face? In that shot? Yeah. No. Okay, and then he, you can you know that he's kind of like at some point, like as soon as he comes in, he's kind of standing like over like next to June, and she's yeah. looking up at him, but you can't see his yeah. face. We don't see his face until um he sits down and then says, um. I was thinking perhaps um, we could have a rematch tonight for Scrabble. Okay. That's when you see his face, but you don't see it before then. It's otherwise just this looming presence. So, again, oh, my God, my mind is blown right now because oh I just yes. realized Connect there's the this whole— Connect the dots. Th- yeah, okay, so there's this whole thing, and I'm not really sure what they're trying to say, but, okay, so we were talking in the last episode about Serena and how you could only see the back of her head. Okay, and so it's like the scene in the dining room when she's talking to Rita, and mm-hmm. it's the scene um, when she's sitting there knitting, and June is begging for her, and yep. so you can't see her face. In the car, when Nick is driving her home from the appointment, you can't really see his face. He's right. kind of like, you know, he's driving, he's looking forward. I mean, mm-hmm. he might kind of like glance back a little mm-hmm. bit, but you don't really see his face mm-hmm. when she's having this interaction with him. Then Fred comes in, and again, Fred, in this particular scene, you don't really see his face until they purposely focus on it. Mm-hmm. And she, again, is like, you know, she has to look to this person um, for guidance or whatever. Then there's the fucking doctor. When she's on the table, you can't see his face for a good majority of the scene until he pops out from behind the thing and is like, hey, want to fuck? Like, it's... <laughs> so what does that mean? Because it's... They keep doing that over and over and over again throughout this episode. 
the only face that they tend to fo- that they focus on other than June's is Moira's. Yeah. Oh God, there's something here. Okay. We're so close. Oh God, what is it? What is I it? What is it? Pull Moira into it only because we see a lot of faces in the flashbacks. Yeah. So it might get iffy, but if you're looking in the present, I feel like it's still more of. What we were talking about mm-hmm. in that one scene with Serena yeah. when June is pleading, when she, Serena's knitting, mm-hmm. where if you can't see their face, then you can't understand their intentions. Yeah. And that seems to be June's biggest issue in this episode yeah. between the doctor and Fred showing mm-hmm. up early and Serena locking her away. And Nick. And Nick mm-hmm. driving her home. And it's she can't if you can't see their face, there's no humanity. There's no way to read what's happening. And you're just stuck. There's no connection, and you're completely alienated from yeah. everyone else that you might have a possible connection with in your life. Yeah. And it makes her very small in every case because right. she's mm-hmm. at the mercy of every single person whose face you can't see. Yeah. Because yeah. if you can't see their face, how can you understand their motives or understand how to plead to them in a way that's going to get you what you want? Mm-hmm. They're talking to a wall. Yeah. And she's been stuck in a four walls this entire episode. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> She's walled off from the actual interactions that she has with people, and then she is physically walled off in her bedroom. Yeah, she's, she's walled. She is completely cut off from everything, whether isol- she's in present in the presence of people or not. Yeah, isolated and alienated. Nice teamwork, guys. That Ooh, was nice. we, we put all those dogs together. Out, yes. Finally, <laughs> wow. Well, that's impressive. I think it was a collaborative effort mm. of all of our brainwaves working together. Yeah. So after that, he invites her over to a Scrabble rematch at 9 p.m. in his office. Well, right before that, though, they have the closest thing to a normal interaction that June has had, mm-hmm. where he says, I just wanted to say hello. I haven't seen you in a while. Right. And she says, awkwardly, in this almost hit, like, hello. And Fred responds with, Hi. Mm-hmm. It's so normal that it's jarring. There's yeah. no placations. <laughs> there's no, like, under his eye, blessed be the fruit. None of that bullshit. Yep. It's just yeah. two humans who are starved for attention and affection from another human being just trying to find a connection. Mm-hmm. I loved that. It was so good. You know, June is down for this, but she also can't fucking believe that he's even asking her. Well, I don't know. I think it... I felt like she might have been happy for the opportunity. I felt like she was trepidatious. Oh, well, I mean, she could have been that, too. I mean, but it's like a, a spark of, like, something that she gets to do. I mean, it's got to be really intriguing for her mm-hmm. to go to that office. And, and this is the second invite, right? Yeah. Right. But at this point in the game, it, she felt, from what I could see on her face, mm-hmm. it rang more of confusion. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure. As opposed to, like... Why are we not going through the channels he went through before? This is really brazen of you. What the fuck are you doing? Mm, yeah. And that's, that's why she yeah. didn't respond. Um, she only responded with silence when yeah. he asked if she was down for another, or if she was down for another Scrabble match. Because, like, how do you respond mm. to that? I think she was so blindsided by mm-hmm. that. Oh, for sure. That it struck me less as intrigue and like, oh, this will be something fun and different and out of the norm for me. And thank God I get a break from this. And more just what the fuck is he doing? Like, she's still trying to wrap her head around what his what his motivation here is. Mm-hmm. And I think she's terrified because she's already in the doghouse with Serena to a yeah. point where she's begging her to get out. Mm-hmm. Like, at any point, if she pisses Serena off more, like, even the fact that Fred's there early yeah. is going to come back to 
June. Of course. You know? mm-hmm. She's got to be fearing that already. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Mm-hmm. She's going to be pissed yeah. at me. She's not going to take it out on you. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like she's just like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Serena does come in. I mean, she does have reason to be afraid because Serena could come in at any moment and ruin things, which she does in mm-hmm. only the way that Serena can. And I'm going <laughs> to start a tally of all the times that Serena walks into something and ruins it. <laughs> Starting right fucking now. I'm going to do this because I started my rewatch for episode five and she does it there. And I fell asleep and woke up in the middle of episode six and she does it in that one too. There's so many instances where Serena is the one that comes into a room and just ruins it with all of her foreboding and bitchiness. Serena's a harbinger of doom. (laughs) She really is. She is like a black cloud. She is like the crow at the cemetery. That is Serena. She swoops in and she spreads her wings of darkness and is like, stop having fun. (laughs) She drives me crazy. (laughs) But I still love her, though. Well, she stares Fred down as she makes her way in the room, and she's like, well, who's an early bird today? You know, this is an interesting household because I get the feeling that in other homes in Gilead, this kind of barb against a husband would not be allowed. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder about that. Mm -hmm. And Fred gives her a dirty look. (laughs) Everyone in this room looks fucking miserable. Well, the faces that we can see because we can't see Nick and we can't see um, Uh Rita, so... Who knows what they're looking like, but I'm imagining it's all sorts of awkward between the two of them. Once again, nobody is thrilled to be joyously creating a child out of rape. (laughs) And, um, oh, notice the placement of Rita's hands when she's standing behind June. Yep. um, When they're doing the whole, like, Bible passage thing. You mean like a vagina? Yeah. She's holding her hands, like, in a triangle, like, in front of her crotch. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow. That has to be intentional. And that is the most ridiculous thing. Could you imagine coaching people on ceremony nights? You're going to stand behind the handmaid and you're going to fix your hands as a triangle in front of the crotchal region. So it's like Gilead's version of like crossing your fingers. I don't know. I guess so. We're going to make triangles. (laughs) It's like, okay. It's either like a dilapidated American sign language for vagina to maybe bring luck as a totem, Mm -hmm. or it's supposed to signify the like love triangle that these three are in. Oh, three God. sides. Oh, I like yeah. That. <laughs> Either way. I like the duality of the options. Three people bringing a baby into the world. <laughs> doesn't usually work like that, but here we are. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't usually work like that when all three parties are not on board. Yeah. When it's a consensual thing, all that is to be had for all. all. Of the thumbs up. <laughs> but <laughs> in this particular scenario, no wonder why everybody looks miserable. Like, this is the worst threesome. <laughs> is it terrible threesome time again? Fuck. Right. <laughs> it really is the saddest threesome ever. <laughs> oh, man, it's awful. Well, when they can actually make it happen. Oh, um, my God. But, oh, Serena's face acting here is brilliant mm-hmm. because, like, she's looking up at Fred with this furrowed eyebrow. And uh-huh. it's not fully anger for mm-hmm. Rhode Eyebrow, but it's just like this subtle, like, she knows. She knows exactly why he's there, because he's giving he's giving June something that she can't have, which is that that privacy and yeah. that moment of intimacy. Yeah. And she's not afforded that with him. So, like, there's this bit of jealousy in her face. There's anger. There's frustration. It's just, it's perfectly acted by her. So, oh, God, I 
fucking love Yvonne in this. Mm-hmm. The Waterford gang really embraces their awkward. I love it. They really know how to bring it. <laughs> they really do. And it gets even more awkward because then we cut to the bedroom scene and Serena and June are waiting for Fred to make his appearance. <laughs> so awkward. And Serena has to prompt him to get his ass in here. <laughs> I love that she yelled to him. Like, what the fuck? Fred, are we getting it? Come on, <laughs> let's do a, this. It's not a welcoming. Fr- it's just like a cold. It's almost it like frustrating. Fred, take out the garbage. It is. Yeah. It's so that. Like, seriously. It's such yeah. a chore. This is, is obviously a chore for everybody. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It's so funny. Well, he takes position, but it looks like Fredo is having a hard time getting it up. Well, he and, takes position, and I, I'm going to bring it up again, and I'm mm-hmm. feeling I'm beating a dead horse here, but the chandelier is over his head. Oh, shit. Okay. So, I want to know what the chandelier is. He's the mean. king. Yeah. He's the king of this domain. He is the dominant person in this room. He's he, the one that's got to perform at this yeah, point. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And uh, the chandelier above him is super fuzzy. And again, if I'm beating a dead horse and there's nothing to this, no, then I so like be it. it. But it just kept jumping out at me in this episode. Mm-hmm. Is like, that chandelier is above his head and it's fucking fuzzy because his crown's not fitting quite right. It's, and not, nope. it's not working quite right. <laughs> it's not working. He is, he just can't get it up. Yeah. Um, God, this is awkward. And the look on everybody's face. Yeah, I mean, you have to, I have to give Fred a little bit of understanding. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the two faces, June looks straight up dead. Mm -hmm. Serena's basically crying. Like, she's on the verge of crying. Like, I mean, is any of this scene, like, turning you on? Because it's definitely not turning Fred on. And I can understand why it's not. Like, it's turning (laughs) me on so much. My God. Yeah, go baby, let's I'm, do this. I'm going to go home and masturbate to this scene. <laughs> For sure. dead behind the eyes handmade and crying wife. Right. <laughs> this really is the most. This is sarcasm, folks, just in case. So I just sarcasm. can't wait for that fucking review to come up when they were like, these sick bitches want to masturbate to rape. Oh, my no. God. No. No, 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 no. That was sarcasm. No, no, no. This is the most All of the pathetic threesome ever. Without yes. a doubt. And June has a look on her face like, I'm like, is she trying not to laugh or trying not to cry? Like, everybody kind of looks like I don't know what to do here. No one knows where to look. Um, did you guys notice how when you have Serena and June in the bed and they're waiting for Fred to come in, um, as Fred's walking in, they focused on June's gnarled bandage on her finger. Oh, no, I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's it was a it was a quick little shot, but um so June has her hands folded on her belly and Fred's walking in and Fred's kind of fuzzy and you see the that stupid band-aid that they keep talking about mm-hmm. in this episode and it just is it's looking fucking festered at this point. Yeah, yeah. which that's another thing. How are you going to get off and like get a hard on when the girl that you're trying to the girl that you're trying to rape is like clearly wounded? I'm sorry. I, I don't know. I think the wounded figure, the wounded figure, might be the least of his problems in the grand scheme of what's happening. Grand, I think that's just another visual it thing. Is. Yeah, I, I don't know. This is great. Bigger. I mean, oh, I wait, get your no, point not. though, because this is like the one time they're supposed to like really bathe, and like, yeah. why hasn't she changed her bandage? Exactly. They're supposed Weird. to be brushed like a prized pig, mm-hmm. and here she is with a dirty bandage on her finger. Yeah. Unless she looked like shit when yeah. she was in her room earlier maybe just this whole like bathing and the care of the prized pig has been suspended while she's in exile or when she maybe that was supposed to happen but she was at the doctor yeah maybe yeah she did but yeah so he can't he's having technical difficulties Mm -hmm. so he bounces yep so and serena watches him go and her eyes look so shiny i did feel for her did you for yeah i did because like because it's it really was and I don't know what was going through her mind. I feel like 
it's kind of obvious from the beginning of the uh, episode that she's been trying to have a connection with her husband in any way possible. And this is like this baby thing is Serena's hill to die on. Mm -hmm. And so as much as she's not invested in the actual act, I think him leaving Mm -hmm. and making the act not possible I think it was a double-edged sword because, you know, she's just like, well, this baby opportunity, mm-hmm. baby-making opportunity is walking out the door, but also like, oh, my God, what is up with this guy? He doesn't pay attention to me or mm-hmm. anything. I don't know where he is. And I think she was feeling that disconnect, and I think it really bothered her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'll agree with that. Um I couldn't read her face to see whether it was concern for her husband or because she wasn't going to get her baby this month. I think it was both. Yeah, yeah I think it so. It definitely too. could be both. I, I agree with that. I'm glad you brought that up because mm-hmm. in our last episode, we mentioned a lot that Serena is devoid of humanity. And I don't think it's necessarily that. I'm not on board with Serena being entirely inhumane. I think a lot of her actions are, Mm -hmm. but I think this episode really does bring to light that she is suffering in her own way. She just lashes out and responds in such an inhumane way that it is hard to see that humanity. Mm -hmm. But I think in this moment here, you're right, Scarlett, it does kind of show, once again, that she does have feelings. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the baby or the fact that this... I think it's the fact that She has given up so much for this one thing. She Mm -hmm. has conceded everything else in her life so that she can have this baby. Mm -hmm. And none of it is working out for her. And she's just as stuck as everyone else. And I feel like as easy as it is to make Serena the ultimate villain, especially in an episode where she's acting like one towards June, it is good to remember that she is as oppressed as everyone else, Mm -hmm. every other female in the society. That's That's a really good take on it. It is hard to remember that she has sacrificed her independence, her freedom, her voice, Mm -hmm. her ability to read, her relationship with her husband just to be able to have this child that she so desperately wants. Or for the ideology that she spouted, which we don't we haven't seen yet. You know what I mean? But let's say I have to say that Serena is at least slightly on board with the Gilead ideology. I don't think it's all this grand scheme for her to get a baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, adoption was certainly a thing, no? Like, there were other routes maybe with the lack of babies it wasn't so much. But right. I, I would imagine she had access to other routes to get mm-hmm. babies than to overthrow a government. Well, but, well. but towards the end of season two, when her and Fred are fighting in Mackenzie's summer home and June is watching them trying to figure out if she's mm. going to blow their head off or not, that mm-hmm. was the fight that her and Fred were having is she told him, like, you know, I told you I would do this, but only if I could get a baby out of it. Yeah. Like, that's all I fucking wanted was a baby. Right. And you still, still haven't delivered. <laughs> like, because now my handmaid is running around the streets with my baby. Right. <laughs> so I think Fair. it really is. I mean, she said as much, but we don't get yeah. that information until much mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. But her ideology yeah. is this, like, stay-at-home, nurturing mother of yeah. this is a woman's it's work. It's a woman's place. Place, is that what it was? Yeah. Yep. Oh, my God. I I can't roll my eyes hard enough. <laughs> Tell me about it. But we're also, we're at a disadvantage trying to see her perspective mm-hmm. because you're both mothers mm-hmm. and I have no interest in it. Mm-hmm. So we don't understand that struggle of what it's like to have that innate insatiable desire right. to have children and then not be able to exactly it's yeah. a very good point which yeah. must be i mean heart-wrenching at yeah. best yeah and whether it's infertility or child loss it's um no doubt 
incredibly painful mm-hmm. for a woman who really, really, really wants children. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And in a world where 20% of, what, 20% of pregnancies result in a normal child? Yeah. I if you're able was. to get pregnant at all, uh-huh. it seems that maybe adoption's not really an option. Yeah. Right. All so. the children have been adopted or are probably purchased. Very, yeah. I'm sure that would be a thing. Yeah. Right. So there's this sense of desperation in her uh, in her face. Right. And in her actions. Which, is it understandable? Nah, not really. But can we kind of get where she's coming from when you take when you take a step back and you don't view it, view it from this, like, microcosm? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I do think it's twofold, too. As much as I think baby is definitely priority number one for her, and she's willing to concede everything else in her life for that baby, mm-hmm. I mean— Fred was her husband. Fred is her husband. Mm -hmm. Fred was her husband before Gilead. I mean, we have to assume there was a connection and a love there that she is not feeling. Like, as much as we talk about how isolated June is Mm -hmm. and very much at the hands of Serena, Mm -hmm. Serena is equally isolated. Right. Not equally. She is isolated as well. Mm -hmm. I'd say she's equally emotionally isolated. Mm. That's a good way to put it. Because Serena has no one at this point that she can turn to. She. The wives don't seem to have close, intimate connections. I mean, they're as friendly as they can be. Right. But really, Serena's only solace would be with her husband, and she's not afforded that. Right. At least, like, Alfred had of Glenn 1.0. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, she found a connection. What does right. Serena have? Rita, really. Right. And that still has to maintain some level of coldness. And, boundaries. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Those boundaries still need to be in play. Mm-hmm. So but she's it, like... Begging Fred for any kind of mm-hmm. connection. Give this the episode. woman a fucking bone yep. already. Right. Literally. Let- <laughs> 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 Pun completely intended. That is why I think that there a little bit of that look that we see in her face yeah. as Fred leaves is not. It, it is that you know what the hell I need my baby? Where are you going? But I also think she genuinely feels for him. Yeah. I think yeah. it was longing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's what makes Serena such a wonderful villain because she's so multifaceted. She's not yeah. one-dimensional. She's not just an huh? atrocious human being. Like, right. There's a lot of complexity to this character. Definitely. Thanks, Yvonne Strahovski. Mm-hmm. Oh. No one else could have done it better. So true. Yeah. She's amazing. She she's really absolutely is. amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Yvonne, Serena pulls her skirt back like she's yanking a tablecloth off of a table. <laughs> that sound is just like... <laughs> and... Nicely done. Um, and then we cut to Fred choking the chicken in the other room. <laughs> but uh, Serena comes in and she offers to help him. And there is pleading in her eyes and they have this moment and they are both so starved for affection and Fred rebuffs her. Before he rebuffs her, though, so she gets close to him and when she's, like, I'm assuming giving him or giving him a hand job and asking him, does that feel good? Mm-hmm. And he's not standing there cold and rigid. Like he moves his head towards her. Yeah. So there's definitely yeah. this like desire on his end as well to feel this connection with her. I think what his biggest problem was when she tried to go down on him and he pushes her away and says, Don't, he realized at that point that she wasn't doing it for the sake of his pleasure. She was doing it for the sake of his sperm. Mm. You have a different thought? I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I'm sure that, yeah, his sperm was definitely going to be a freaking bonus. But in this moment, I think that she's been wanting him so bad all episode. Mm -hmm. 
she's just she wants a connection with him that when she offered to help him, mm-hmm. I think she was genuinely doing it from a place of love. But he probably he may have seen it differently. Right. That's we're, or, we're afforded the opportunity to see Serena's face throughout all of the episode and yeah. see her reactions when Fred's not looking. Yeah. So I do agree with you that I think. Oh, that, it's another scene where you don't see his face and mm-hmm. you only yeah. see, you know, in this time instead of June, it's Serena. Right. Right. Huh. So hmm. I agree that she's looking for that genuine connection and we know he is too. Yeah. But he's probably at this point skewed because he's um, he's trying to figure out what her motivations are for this and. I I think seeing June before the ceremony fucked him up. He obviously went in there with an agenda that he wanted to see her again. Mm -hmm. So Serena's not even on his mind. So maybe that was a big part of the issue. He can't look down at he can't look down at June. Mm -hmm. He has to ignore her. It's Mm -hmm. just kind of a mandated thing. Like you're not gonna be feeling up, nor are you gonna look at your handmaid that you're Mm -hmm. currently raping. But he has to look at his wife, and his wife is not who he wants to see. Right. Oh. So maybe that's what it is. That I I like that. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I like that, too. Glad and sh- that is a slap in the face to Serena. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense why she looks completely gutted mm-hmm. after he refuses her and yeah. walks away. Oh, man, that's insulting. That's kind of heartbreaking and makes her a bit more sympathetic a character. I'm glad that we walked through this. Right. Because that's, that's a nice—it's pr- not a nice. It's a, a refreshing perspective on yeah. it. Yeah. It's every fear she had of the handmade situation. Mm-hmm. Damn. Oh, that's heavy. Well, Serena goes back to her bedroom, and she tells June to get the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And June, I mean, she must be relieved. It's not happening. She no, doesn't have to get raped right now. Yeah, she's not, not tonight. relieved, though. Well, she says it. Well, oh. she at least knows she's going to be blamed for it. Oh, yeah. I'll be blamed. I'm not blameless. Yep. He tried to talk with me. He tried to connect. Mm-hmm. That's what he needs. And I like how they, as she's making her way down the hallway and she's running her fingers along the wall, Mm -hmm. and she talks about, you know, when you run your finger along the edge of a glass and it makes a sound, and when she's running her finger along the wall, it's the same exact sound. I thought that was just so perfect. But then the glass sound blends in with a violin as she actually, like, gets there. Mm -hmm. But she says, um, this is what I feel like, the sound of glass. I feel like the word shatter. That got me in my feels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I understand that feeling. It's right. an awful place to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she looks just positively weary, and she goes back to the closet again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she goes to her little sanctuary. I imagine she gets a lot of strength from those words. Almost certainly, even if at this point she doesn't understand what they mean. Because it's the only connection that she has at this point. Right. And that's exactly what she just said Fred needs. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what we see that Serena needs. Mm -hmm. Everyone needs this fucking connection and no one can find it in this world. Yeah. It's just crazy because think about how hard we're analyzing this right now. When you really Mm -hmm. pick apart each and every little scene in every episode. And this is the magic that Margaret Atwood weaves. She says so much in so few words. And what we see in the show is portrayed in a very minimalist fashion. It's it's like a great right. literary work, but 
on screen and to sit there and really marinate in what's happening. And like, I mean, look at what we're talking about right now. Like the depth of these two scenes is absolutely staggering. And I just feel like it really lends to the writing in the show. And then also Margaret Atwood, who has created this world to begin with. Right. Where so little is said, but just the magnitude of what is happening Mm -hmm. on so many different facets is just absolutely like devastatingly horrible and beautiful at the same time. Yeah. What I love. It's incredible. Is that because and I could be wrong. Roxy, you'll be able to tell me, I believe (laughs) that line, that glass rim shattered. That's from the book, right? Mm -hmm. Sounds like Margaret Atwood. But the show can take. That incredible line, because mm-hmm. it is such an incredible and rich line, and the book is incredible mm-hmm. and rich, exactly like you're saying, mm-hmm. Scarlett, and then just expand upon it in all these little nuanced ways where yep. it just brings it larger and bigger. Like, yeah. it's so hard to take a book mm-hmm. and make it translate on screen mm-hmm. better, and I think this show does it. Well, I genuinely do. Out of doubt. They do Agreed. it again in the next episode. I cannot mm-hmm. wait until we cover episode five, because <laughs> in the first three minutes, there is this thing, and I'm just like, mind blown. Just, you're chomping at the bit for it. I oh. love it. Oh, I can't wait. I had a mild mind blown while I was listening to, I'm trying to listen to The Handmaid's Tale book. Re-listening. I have read the book before, mm. but it's been a long time, and I don't remember lots of it. So I'm trying to get through it as we get through the show and kind of try to find the same scenes. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard. <laughs> I'm losing my place because it definitely jumps around. Yeah, it does. And so I'm trying to, like, figure it all out um, and find the right spots. But one thing I definitely didn't remember when we were doing the Testaments, I loved so much in the Testaments when Lydia is talking about— uh, pen envy and the pen is envy. Yes, and I didn't, you had to explain that to me because oh, yeah. I was like, I didn't. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was hear so that brilliant. Term. I didn't know. <laughs> I thought it was so cool. Yes, the pen is envy, penis uh-huh. envy, like whole mm-hmm. thing. Uh-huh. It's in the Handmaid's Tale book. It's in uh-huh. the original. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I really thought it was a testament thing. Obviously, it's that one either way. Mm-hmm. But I was just like, oh shit, it's in here too, and I still loved it just as much oh, as I did just, in the testaments. <laughs> we're such geeks for the callback. <laughs> we really are. <laughs> So then after that, we have uh, the flashback to her escape with Moira again. And I feel like these flashbacks purposely parallel her imprisonment by Serena Mm -hmm. in their home, for sure. They're in a similar situation at the Red Center, like very tightly regimented, always at fall, always watched, never allowed outside of their building. Mm -hmm. So they're outside for the first time in who knows how long, and they don't know how to navigate this world at all. Everything is so different. They're walking by bodies hanging on the sides of buildings. There's bodies going by in carts. There's book burnings. There's art burning. Mm -hmm. There are eye motifs on the walls as they're going through the subway. Um, The subway signs are being taken down. At least we know they're in Arlington, though. Right. Um, For those of you that are not familiar with um, with the layout of Boston and the greater Boston area, Arlington Mm -hmm. is to the northwest. It's um, So you have Boston proper. You cross the river, there's Cambridge and Somerville, and then um, Arlington is northeast of that. Okay. So it's maybe, I mean, I would say a 20-minute walk from uh, from Greater Boston or okay. from Central Boston. All right. Well, that's where they want to go. They want to go to Boston proper. Right. And this is where they make their mistake. Because, again, they haven't been out in the world, and they don't understand how things work. Moira mm-hmm. never should have left the side right. of June. Never. June absolutely, had they known better, mm-hmm. should have gone with her. And um, the guardian who talks to June at first is, like, very friendly. Yeah. Um, you could tell that they're not quite 
there yet I with totally like think so, yeah. they still have memories of like times before and this guy is obviously like this is my job and like hey what's up how you right. doing like yeah. you know just Civility normal stuff is a thing, yeah huh? exactly like <laughs> yeah. oh yeah no it's it's hard to navigate now that they right. don't have the signs yeah. we'll figure it out like, like, just, very amiable hey this is mm-hmm. new for all of us hey how you doing where right. do you need to go can i help mm-hmm. you it was kind of nice but june is paralyzed by indecision what does she even say she has no idea what to say and what to do in this situation. Well, she makes the best play that she can by saying nothing at all. Yeah. Because as soon as he asks for her ID card, there's that shift in his voice. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think like, she recognized that. And yeah. had she said, I'm with my Martha, she's over there, and immediately that would have raised suspicion for both of them. because, yep. Or rather, um, my aunt, she's over there. Mm-hmm. An aunt would not have left a handmaid alone. Mm-hmm. So it would have raised red flags for both of them. So even though she was mm-hmm. paralyzed by that indecision, yeah. she still made the right play here. I think so, too. Yeah. But this train comes, and Moira has a choice. And this really—I was very choked up watching mm. this because yeah. it's like June is telling her with her eyes, really. Yeah. It's, it's okay. Yep. It's like, go. Get go. on the train. Right. They're both, they both don't really know what to do, but just get on the train, Moira. And June has to watch her friend leave. Mm-hmm. And it's so devastating. Mm-hmm. And June's smiling when she's looking at Moira. And then as soon as Moira gets on the train, mm-hmm. you see June realize that, like, oh, she knows fuck. what's happening. And she knows that she's just sacri- sacrificed herself. So that way Moira has a breath of a chance of getting out, yeah. which is gutting. But you know that June also is acknowledging that it's better that one of them has a chance of getting out than they both get brought back to the Red yeah, Center. Right. Absolutely. What's great about this, though, is that June is... June is releasing Moira, and Moira knows that, and you see it in Moira's face, and it's so fucking heavy. But I kind of feel like June's at peace knowing that Moira wouldn't have stood for this, and that she, I mean, she acknowledges it as much when we flash forward to the present. She seems proud of her. Yeah. 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 And at least one of them is getting out. Yep. And if it is going to be one of them, then let it be the diehard woman who is standing firm against everything that this bullshit regime stands against and also the one who would have a far harder time dealing with the systemic rape mm-hmm. than her. So. And they talk about it before they get on the train mm-hmm. that Moira has a better chance anyway because she knows where the safe houses are. That's true. Yeah. She had talked about the safe houses yeah. and I just need to get us to Boston and then I can get us into a safe house. They're mm-hmm. out there, the collective. Right. If June's the one that gets on the train, she isn't going to have the first clue how to find these safe houses. But the if point. the collective is even still in existence. Yeah. Right. I mean, because we know eventually Moira makes her way back to Gilead and she ends up in Jezebel. So obviously mm-hmm. whatever it she was doing, didn't, it didn't work out. Right. Mm-hmm. But between the two, we I think we'd all agree Moira has a better chance of making it. Yeah. Absolutely. It's very altruistic. Mm-hmm. Well, then we cut to June sitting in the closet, and Moira is her inspiration, and it's June's memories of her is what makes her get up and do something, I think. Yeah. She and literally says, Moira wouldn't stand for this. No. And she would find a way to get out. She would find a way to escape. And then she says, get up. Get your crazy ass up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she marches down to Fred's office, and she op- he opens the door, and she enters. God, how pleased as punch is he? <laughs> you know, right? He's like, oh, I didn't. This is great. You showed up. Cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, they're sitting in front of the fire playing Scrabble, and she asks him how his trip was. 
and he starts unloading about work stuff and he's stressed out. And this is why I was like, well, maybe this is one of the reasons that he couldn't get it up because he's if he's unloading about this work stuff, I was he obviously is preoccupied. He's super, super preoccupied. So Mm -hmm. between June, you know, not being the person he really wants to see in front of him when he's trying to mindlessly rape somebody Mm -hmm. and then work, I think he just was really kind of in a place where he didn't know what to do with himself. Right. He seems like this whole thing was like just him blowing off steam. What was weird about it was earlier in the episode, we have the breakfast scene where he's diligently working mm. and he's just trying to sort out what's happening with the uh, with the aunt that's escaped and how they're uh, how he's going to spin it. Serena asks like Oh, well, what did she say? Mm-hmm. Well, you can imagine. Nothing but lies and hyperbole. And like, oh, nothing for you to worry about. We have good men working on mm-hmm. it. Kind of brushing her aside. But when June asks, he's willing to divulge details. Mm-hmm. He's willing to entertain the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different dichotomy. And it's, uh, it's, it's, an, it's a nice uh, duality between the two. Because right. it's showing that he is so far removed from his relationship with Serena that he doesn't even give a shit about entertaining her intellect or stimulating her intellectually. But mm-hmm. with June, he's sort of intrigued by her. She's new. Yeah. It's just such an old trope of you know, the guy got the guy has his wife and then he's got his side piece. Yeah. And he mm-hmm. conducts himself in a certain way with his wife and then the side piece he conducts himself in a completely different way. Right. Nothing's changed in Gilead. <laughs> in Gilead, as is elsewhere, it's pretty sure much is. the same kind of shit. Yep. Yeah. They have great banter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're playing Scrabble, and uh, I really like their back and forth. You know, she says, maybe I should let you win again. Mm-hmm. And he says, that's nice of you, but I prefer I prefer a fair fight. Mm-hmm. And he challenges the word that she makes. What was the word? I, I forgot what it was. Sylph. <laughs> Sylph. And I'm like, asshole, I know that's a word. Why do you need to go look this up? Or was it just a, hey, why don't you go get me the dictionary thing so I could see you walk away or something like that? (laughs) It (laughs) brought me back to season three once again with the whole useful and the I'm like, oh, my gosh. Larry in the the study with the other commanders. Season three just like a rehash of season one because I didn't realize it until now, and it's blowing my mind. Yeah, that you're— Absolutely right. It was like mm-hmm. as soon as like he asked her to get the book, it was so much like when Larry, uh, when uh, Commander Lawrence, mm-hmm. aka Larry, was like, yep. "No, no, go get the book. Go be useful. See, yeah, they they can figure this sort of shit out. Like it's all a fucking performance. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> well, she's running her hands along all these books. She's definitely taking her time doing it. I could understand why she was doing it. She finds the dictionary, but like right next to it is a Latin grammar book. Could they have made the color of that even more glaringly obvious? Like, it was just a klaxon. What was the color? I didn't notice. Because apparently I missed it. (laughs) I did, too. (laughs) All the other books on that shelf were, like, these old-school-style tomes. Like, everything looked dusty. Everything looked like an encyclopedia. Yes. Like, it looked like a set of encyclopedias, all of Except for the Latin grammar book, Mm -hmm. which was, like, written with, like, Times New Roman, and it was, like, this vibrant green. It was, like, iridescent almost. Yeah, so when she's reaching for the dictionary, which looks dated and dusty, right next to it is that fucking vibrant, like, Oh, no, I missed that. They're basically trying to hit us over the head with it. Like, look at what's next to it. 
Well, they should have hit harder because we missed it. <laughs> yeah, right? God. But I, I noticed it by the words, I not the actual right. color. I, I That's the thing. I was like, color, oh, exactly. Latin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, she gets that idea. You know, this pings her radar, too. And she goes back and she asks him if he ever studied Latin. And he said, yeah, his parents made him take it. So you help him with the SATs. Ugh. It's just a weird callback to normal times. Mm-hmm. And she wonders about the previous Offred. Uh, what price did she pay for her insolence? Has she been here before? Mm-hmm. My predecessor, knowing, knower of Latin, scratcher of words. Hmm. Am I not the first he's invited to this room? Mm-hmm. What happened? Did she say the wrong thing? Did she displease him, the emperor of this house? And what price did she pay for her insolence? And we hear faintly muffled cries as we leave this scene. Mm-hmm. That was creepy. It was. And we cut to a flashback of the aftermath of June's recapture. So they drag her in there and they throw her on this padded table and strap her down. And June is pleading with them. And Aunt Lydia walks in. She says, the most painful thing is not the betrayal of trust, June. Do you know what's the most painful? The most painful thing in this entire ugly incident is the ingratitude. Do you realize the opportunity you have been given? You were an adulterer, a worthless slut. I love how she says slut. She has a way of saying (laughs) slut that really just punctuates the word (laughs) slut. But God found a way to make you useful. So, where's the gratitude? And the entire time, June's just quivering and saying, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm grateful. Yeah, (laughs) super grateful. But then she says, and chickens will come home to roost. Aunt Elizabeth? <laughs> oh, shit. That's like the last friggin' person June wants to see because she comes in with some cables tied together, and we know that's not great when uh, her socks are ordered to be taken off. The rebar whip. That is. Oh, God. That, I'm just thinking about that and what it must be like. And that's a certain level of archaic that I'm just not even prepared to wrap my head around. Nope. And obviously, Aunt Elizabeth beats the ever-loving shit out of her feet Mm -hmm. because then later June's dragged back to the gym where everybody is asleep, and her feet are bloodied and Mm -hmm. bandaged. She can't walk, so they are literally, like, dragging her in, and she's just—she's in an absolute daze, and I just can't imagine what it must be like to be assaulted in such a way. Right. Ooh, see, that face that she she had when, like, they plunked her on the bed and Mm -hmm. she's just— wide-eyed staring forward struck me as less of being in a daze and more of just utter shock and repulsion that oh yeah it was just like how could this happen how could i like and kind of wrapping her head around like the reality that she was going to see Mm -hmm. herself in since she wasn't able to get on that subway train right for me that face was the culmination of her going from that 75 percent realizing what's happening to Mm -hmm. the full 100 percent just I'm so beyond screwed. Yeah. It was that realization for me. As Finally. A, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that, epiphany, that epiphany. Unfortunately, it took that. Granted. But it was that sort of epiphany moment. That's mm-hmm. how I viewed that, as opposed to a daze, was pure, utter awakening to her uh, to her situation. I thought moments before Lydia's face, while she's watching Elizabeth go into June, mm-hmm. that I was— it, there was an interesting expression on her face, and it was hard to read. It almost looked a little sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And I'm, do you remember in the testaments if it's if Lydia accuses Elizabeth or Helen? Helena? What was her name? God, I can't remember Helen. her name. I thought it was Vidala. Was it Vidala that like the, ac- side, the side of blood? 
the color of blood, something like no, that. No, she had um, accused of Aunt Lydia like of like going light oh, and not no, being afraid of the right. primary Mary colors. Yes, you're right. It was Vidala accusing Lydia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was just interesting. Lydia's face was a little hard to read in that scene. I couldn't quite figure out what she was thinking. Hmm. I didn't pick up on that. Mm-mm. I like where you're going with that because it's it could add a nice a, a nice layer to a premeditated notion that Lydia is already starting to get these seeds of doubt. Yeah. Or that she obviously already has the seeds of doubt, but she's letting little cracks in that facade show through. Right. Huh. I like that. And it was was kind of, it could have been either. It also Mm -hmm. could have been like, you made me look really bad. Yeah, that's true. You know, and it was was just a really great acting because you couldn't read what it was. And out. Bravo. So we see the um, we see the repercussions that June has to bear for her insolence as we flash forward and back to present time and back to Waterford's office. And they're tallying the scores. And um, he says, oh, you did let me win with a chuckle. She coquettishly says, maybe. And he asks for a rematch tomorrow after the ceremony. Cool, so we know we're getting a rematch of the ceremony, too. I know, right? Yay. (laughs) But June's smart here, and she says, it's a date. Mm -hmm. She plays into that fact that he is so craving desperately that human connection. She knows how to appeal to it. She really does. Like, Mm -hmm. she knows that there's part of him that wants to feel like a knight in shiny armor, and and she just knows how to... How to play it. Mm -hmm. And he eats it up. He absolutely loves it. And then she asks him for a favor. uh, You know, can you do me a favor? Of course. Anything. Within reason. (laughs) Which, what does that even constitute? (laughs) What is reason? None of this is within reason. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Are we applying reason here, Fred? Right. Can you make me a chart? Like, (laughs) what's in reason and not in reason? Right. We're not sure anymore. If we're asking for a favor within reason, just explain. (laughs) Period. Here is a dry erase marker and a four by six foot page. Just just graph this all out for me and explain how I ended up here. Well, uh. a favor is to translate the thing in her closet. And um, if this gives him pause at first, I don't feel like he shows it. Right. Mm. But then he does ask her where she heard it from. Mm-hmm. And he goes to his bookcase. He grabs the Latin book and he just says it's a joke. You know, and it's obviously like it's written on the inside of the cover. Mm-hmm. It means don't let the bastards grind you down. So we finally know what this mm-hmm. fucking means. Or it's something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a poor translation. But then he asks her again where she heard it. And she's like, oh, from a friend. <sighs> Man, and this was very dangerous for her mm-hmm. because it really could have gone somewhere she wouldn't have wanted it to because— I mean, it's not like handmaids are supposed—the only friends she has, allegedly, are her handmaid friends, Mm -hmm. and they shouldn't be talking about things like Latin. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be talking about what things mean Mm -hmm. and words and reading. So that—he could have taken that to a whole other place, and she's lucky that he didn't. For what it's worth, though, I mean, the first introduction that we get to his office is that— in here, we can bend the rules yeah. just a little. That's what I, I, I didn't feel that trepidation of mm-hmm. like, oh, he's going to get mm-hmm. angry or find you out or you're. Yeah. I, I just felt like this was her just kind of playing up this game of like, yeah. it doesn't count in here. I, I got yeah. both. I was mm-hmm. like, you know, she she's playing it and like, yeah, it doesn't count, but she's still taking a risk. For sure. Of course. By putting it out there. Mm-hmm. But I 
it was definitely a calculated risk. Mm -hmm. She says she heard it from a friend, and this is where the conversation gets really friggin' interesting. Oh, his face when he asks, did you know her? Did you know her somehow? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you can start to see that regret itching, like, just slowly creeping over his face. Whether it's regret for what happened to the former of uh, Fred or regret for the circumstances they find themselves in or regret for the entirety of how Gilead was built. Like, that's the first time that we see that with Fred, really, where it's just, you know that there's something under the surface that he's uncomfortable with. Yep. You know, June asks what happened to her. Well, she's dead. Okay, yeah, we gathered that. (laughs) What happened to her? And he says she killed herself, hung herself from the ceiling. I don't know. I suppose she found her life unbearable. And this is where June latches onto it, and this is where she just takes, she just decides mm-hmm. to take that ball and run with it. She, I think she's got his number at this point. She's like, well, and you want my life to be bearable. And Fred looks sad. He looks genuinely mm-hmm. sad in this, and he says, I would prefer it. I mean, probably because out of his own guilt, because if her life were unbearable, he would feel like a spectacular piece of shit, and then June would kill herself, and he would feel like even more of a piece of shit, and he'd be like, oh, my God, maybe we made the wrong choice. Well, Fred, what gave that away? (laughs) Shocker. Right? And she just knows this. She knows that she can absolutely play this. And she proceeds to tell him how hard it's been for her in that room, and that she's losing touch. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so well done. She it feels is. like she's starting to give up. And I wouldn't want to give up, like my friend. Mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't want to give up. And his response of, that would be a tragedy. <laughs> and he smiles at her and is like, fucking hell. Like, and her little chuckle when she knows that she has him yep. pegged yep. is fucking brilliant. Mm-hmm. I can't remember during this interaction. We actually we do see. Do we see his face when he's replying to her? Is it only focused on her face or is it focused on his? He lo- they focus on his face and okay. he looks up, and or when the shot is on June, mm-hmm. it's June looking straight forward mm-hmm. with her shoulders squared. Ah. and when we see Fred, he's still in that position where he's sort of leaning over the um, the Scrabble table, mm-hmm. so he has to like, kind of look up a little bit. Yep, and it. It looks slightly submissive in that regard because mm-hmm. he is looking in an upward position yeah. when he says that would be a tragedy, and his face is very soft. Yeah. So mm. there you go. So yeah. finally, at the end of the episode, we have a culmination of all of these faces in her life that hold authority over her mm-hmm. in some way. We haven't been able to see their faces, so we assume that maybe they weren't looking her in the face, and this is the one time where we have that like face-to-face interaction, and we can see the intentions of everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finally, we had to wait for the end of the episode for that to happen. At least it happened. Yeah. yeah. That so it was really cool. It just, oh, I love that. There you go. Mm-hmm. Full circle. Well, the next day, June's allowed to leave her cage. <laughs> <laughs> Yippee Skippy and birds are oh. chirping. The air is fresh. And she walks down the driveway with confidence. And Serena's in the window full of fuck you eyes, I'm sure. Because <laughs> Serena's so good at those fuck you eyes. Oh. I love that the birds are chirping. And like as she's as June is walking out... Nick is, like, going to town working on the engine, which yeah. he does a he lot. He's they, always working on a They really do a great job maintaining those cars. Is it because they're Mercedes-Benz and they need all of the work in the world because they're not reliable? Or is it just because, they, like, Nick has nothing better to fucking do? I think it's that. Probably that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so he looks up at her 
And he gives her this nice little smile because he knows the torment that she's been in and mm-hmm. that she's been so severely isolated. So I love that. Mm. I still don't love Nick, but I love that. And you see Serena ominously looming in the window and June latches the gate closed behind her and then they go to a nice flashback back to the Red Center. Mm. Oh, boy. And she's laying on her, uh, she's laying down on her bed. Or, it's not, it's not a bed. It's a cot. Yeah, let's call it what it is. Yeah. Um, They focus on her bloody feet and then they pan on up and then you see all of the other girls returning from lunch mm. and they're giving her offerings. I loved it so much. That was really cool. I love, because I didn't, we kind of work through the whole, like, June can't see anyone's faces kind of thing. And then it comes to fruition in the end where she gets what she wants when we can actually Mm -hmm. see Fred's face. And then the other theme of this episode has absolutely been what women do to each other when they're in this situation and they're hurting. So Mm -hmm. they hurt each other. And it was so nice to see all these women come together. Yeah. And we're going to see that mm-hmm. going forward, that these handmaids do have that connection. And at a moment where she has just lost the only connection she has, and we mm-hmm. talk about connection so much in this episode mm-hmm. and how lacking it is in this world, and then she loses Moira, which is absolutely devastating. I mean, obviously her physical injuries are atrocious and horrible, but even worse is the fact that she has lost that one connection mm-hmm. she has. Moira yeah. has obviously, it's been Slap, we've been slapped in the face with the fact that Moira mm-hmm. is her person. Yes. Mm-hmm. And she loses that. And that has got to be just devastating. And then to have all these other handmaids come in and be like, nope, we're a group. We're a We're team. here for you. Yes. Solidarity. Yeah. I loved it. I yep. love this episode mm-hmm. so much. The music that starts around this time, by the way, it's called Perpetua Mobile. It's the Penguin Cafe Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And it's just like super up beat like just positive like this music instantly makes you feel hopeful (laughs) it is so fantastic so are you familiar with what a perpetual mobile is no Mm -mm. a perpetual mobile machine is a um in music um it carries two distinct meanings the first is as a piece or parts of uh, music that are characterized by a continuous stream of notes usually at a rapid tempo and a rapid pace um it's um often meant to uh, define infinity oh cool so, huh. something else that, you know why it made you feel all nice and sort of warm and fuzzy and happy? Hmm. Um, because this exact song is used in uh, the NPR um, show, This American Life. It oh. is? Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. I watch that all the time. That's their I theme know, song? We just it's not their theme that. song, but they use it all the time in, like, cut scenes <laughs> and to uh, transition between stories. Oh, I had funny. no idea. So, and subconsciously. It's in there. It's in your brain. <laughs> so, subconsciously, it was making you feel warm and safe and fuzzy. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow, that, that is so funny. <laughs> I like that. Something else I liked about all of the girls bringing June food and scraps and whatnot is throughout the seasons, we slowly see June put on this pedestal of almost this, like, godlike figure to these yeah. girls. And they're effectively offering her pagan offerings. It's the oh. testaments. Yeah, the testaments took her, from that. The oranges mm-hmm. and uh-huh. the fucking eggs and everything else. They are offering their patron saint of handmaids oh, offerings. Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> I have more of an appreciation for the testaments as we're going back and having reread The Handmaid's Tale and rewatching all of these seasons. Mm-hmm. But certainly don't miss hyperanalyzing it. 
True. Yeah, I don't miss that part of it, but I'm really just enjoying those like snippets snippets of connection that we're making. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And they just keep popping up yeah. here and there, and it's fantastic. And you can just see how she forged that book. Yeah. So. It's sunny, and June is, uh, June is monologuing. She's like, there was an off-red before me. She helped me find my way out. She is dead. She is alive. She is me. We are handmaids. Nolita te bastardes carborndarium, bitches. And we have birds, wind, and rain. <sighs> and then the continuing, you know, perpetuum mobile penguin cafe orchestra shit. It's just so fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. I love all of this. Likewise. It's dangerously uplifting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess from this point moving forward, at any point that you feel uplifting, <laughs> enjoy it, savor it, because you're going to lose it. <laughs> it's, you get that that trepidation, though, yeah. like feeling that joy. Mm-hmm. I like that the, uh, the credits was just birds chirping. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty. It was outside. She finally got to be yeah, outside. Yeah, was outside. And so, I mean, we hear... Birds chirping and a little bit of wind, mm-hmm. and it just mm-hmm. kind of—it's like a cleansing, happy experience. Right. Yeah, and for her, it's like life at this point. It's I ca- mean, catharsism. Mm-hmm. Hundred percent. So it was refreshing. But again, we're we're not allowed to have nice things in Gilead. No, nope, so. never. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Like even my notes, I was like, "She's free!" with like five exclamation points, and then I'm like. In a Gilead handmade sort of way. I mean, she's <laughs> yeah. outside. That's about it. I mean, we could be happy, but let's be real. Right. But fun fact on this episode, mm-hmm. I was reading a Margaret Atwood interview, mm-hmm. and that Latin phrase mm-hmm. was actually a joke from her childhood and her school days. Stop Apparently, it, like, Yeah, like, that's just a thing. I need more. Yeah, so she was saying that it's so funny. Like, they were asking her about, like, how it's become this, like, feminist battle cry. Mm-hmm. And she said it's really funny to her because, like, Fred saying how it was like a schoolboy joke, mm-hmm. that genuinely was her experience. And it was just this childish joke that kids would say. And, I mean, I'm assuming just because, like, I don't know about you guys, I never took Latin. So don't this is, either. like, lost on me that this would have been a joke. But in Margaret Atwood's childhood, that was oh, that's her experience. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. <laughs> so remember podcast listeners that have been with us for a really long time? Once upon a time in our podcast, we used to talk about uh, historical events or current events that tie into The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. I'm bringing it back. Yay. Because why not? In regards to things like forced rape and forced pregnancy, the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949 actually criminalized genocidal rape. Um, but it wasn't until 2002 with the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court that there was this was the first international treaty to explicitly define forced pregnancy as a crime. And it reads as the following. Committing rape, sexual slavery, and forced prostitution, forced pregnancy, as defined in Article 7, Paragraph 2F, enforced sterilization or any other form of sexual violence also constituting a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions. But these kinds of human rights violations have already happened in history. And if that's one thing that I want to keep driving home is that Margaret Atwood said that if this show was going to proceed, she wanted everything that was done in the show to have already happened to women or people, whatever, in history. Mm-hmm. So it's happened in the form of slavery. It's happened in the form of ethnic cleansing, medical experimentation, or com- combination of the three, if looking at you Nazis. Mm. Um, 
I Godwinded again. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, at this point, we're calling it scarleting, right? Yeah, we're, <laughs> yes, I am embracing it. We're no longer Godwinning discussions. We're scarleting it. I like it. <laughs> so, in regards to the history of slavery in the United States, black women were bred like cattle to fill in the need for slaves as restrictions tightened on human trafficking from um, Africa. These things are already very familiar to us. My studies here in this particular episode led me to learn about something called Unit 731, which was, wow, that was a really hard thing to learn about. Go Google it for yourself. But in short, in the 1930s, Unit 731 was a biological and chemical research unit of the Japanese Army. Because of the rape atrocities committed by the Japanese army in China, the spread of STDs, particularly syphilis, was rampant, and they studied the transmission of the disease to find a cure. The women were raped either by doctors, which that almost became a thing in this particular episode, Mm -hmm. or other male prisoners, which you could probably look at Nick as a prisoner. He doesn't really have a choice in his position Mm -hmm. all that much. And uh, they were told to do so by gunpoint. The women were infected with syphilis, and then they and their babies were subjected to experimentation while alive with the syphilis disease. Mm-hmm. Um, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, at the beginning of the 90s, um, the Serbs tried to breed out the Bosnian population by fathering children with the Bosnian women, which would have failed because culture is not genetic, and I guess they just didn't get that memo. <laughs> Um, and then in current events, and I'd like to give a hat tip to our friend Miran Chu for bringing this to our attention. She sent us a New Zealand Herald, Herald article that states that in Xinjiang, China, they've been carrying out human rights abuses against the Uyghur people, and that includes systematic rape. Um, the Uyghur women's husbands are detained in prison camps and then the Han Chinese men are put in their homes as part of the pair up and become family program that China is pushing on them. And the women don't have any choice. They don't have any choice. These, These men are put in their homes. They get pregnant. That is the whole point is to basically breed away the Uyghur people. And I just hope that Mike Pence and friends aren't getting any brilliant fucking ideas from this. No kidding. Oh, they certainly already have the brilliant ideas. Like I said, The Handmaid's Tale is a Mike Pence wet dream. (laughs) It so is. Mike Pence isn't allowed to have wet dreams. After all, he's super religious. Um, All of that is petrifying and terrible. But we are starting to see an uprising of women standing against Mm -hmm. men who are, at the very least, accused of systemic, repeated sexual abuses and rapes in the form of feminist protesters that are chanting outside of Harvey Weinstein's trial. Yeah? Oh, I haven't been keeping up on this at all. Do tell. It's a little happy shred of news. So an organized group of women uh, performed a feminist anthem and dance in protest outside of of Henry Weinstein's trial in New York on Friday um, while uh, he was inside the courthouse uh, during jury selection. The protesters were outside of the courthouse chanting in Spanish and English, quote, It's the judges, the state, the president, the oppressive state is the rapist. It's not my fault or how I dressed. The rapist is you. End quote. While the group of women were protesting, over 100 potential jurors were inside and they're trying to go through jury selection. And they're having a doozy of a time finding anyone who's not, like, remotely familiar with this case. How impossible must that be at this day and age? I can't even imagine. With social media, how do you... 
you have to find yeah. people that are literally under a rock. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so this chant was uh, popularized in uh, South America as a bit of a battle cry of oh, women shit. against the state um, and against the um, the rape culture that is systemic down there. And so it's moved its way on up huh. to, oh, uh, to New York. Yeah. So any oh, particular cool. countries in South America? Like, would you know where this originated from? Um, I In Chile. In Chile. Yay. So uh, huh. let me see if I can find it specifically for you. That is fascinating. It is. I haven't heard about that at all, and I love it. It's just excellent. Hmm. I mean, there's a whole dance that goes into it as well. Oh, get out of here. No yeah. way. Oh, going to look that up. Yeah. So it's a Chile. It's a Chilean song and uh, a dance to accompany it, and it's meant as a protest that uh, that women are able to do in a peaceful, uh, peaceful manner against those that are being publicly publicly persecuted. So it's this yeah, it's really cool, fantastic feminist chant and dance that started in Chile and has moved its way up to the United States hmm. as a form of protest against uh, against fucking rapists. It's amazing. That is absolutely oh, fantastic. I want to take my kids to these trials. They're in New York, right? Yeah, they are. So they're they're doing jury selection right now. So, oh, I can totally take her then. Yes, you can. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's a little glimmer of good news. Is that at least at least women are using their voices and standing up and protesting against those that would see us undermined. So hats off to all you ladies that were pro- uh, protesting in New York, and serious ups to all of the women in Chile that were uh, that were uh, present for those mm-hmm. protests. Wow, that was some you know light at the end of the tunnel, mm-hmm. just like the end of this episode. But we're not allowed to have nice things, so something awful is bound to happen within the next week. Oh, it will. Just wait until <laughs> you watch, uh, you know, episode five. It's going to be great. <laughs> in Gilead, as elsewhere, <laughs> uh, don't get too uh, happy. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening. We are going to peace out now. Um, Remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Hit us up on our Patreon or any of our other social media, and we will see you again next week to recap Season 1, Episode 5. Thank you. Bye. Love us? Hate us? Either way, let us know. We welcome feedback from intels and incels. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or just shoot us an email at redresistancepodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to give special thanks to Mr. Scarlett for his role in making our podcast sound amazing. Without him, it would be all fuzz and echoes. We'd also like to give a shout out to Peter Levesque of Heliovox for providing us with the badass instrumentals for our intro and outro. You can listen to more of his music on SoundCloud at Heliovox. That's H-E-L-I-A-V-O-X. Thanks for listening, and try not to let the bastards grind you down.